Uh, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at this church, and at this point in the service, we get to open up our Bibles together. So if you would, open up your Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al libro de Efesios, capítulo 6, versículos 5 a 9. We've been in the book of Ephesians for several months now, and we're now finally in the last chapter, the last few sermons in the book of Ephesians. And if you remember, if you've been here with us for any length of time, you'll know that the first three chapters of Ephesians have to do with what God has done, what he's done primarily in his elective purposes in choosing a people from eternity past for himself and then extending toward that people grace. Grace which produced something, which, which produced reconciliation between man and God and between, surprisingly, man and man. And creating, through Christ, one new person from the unreconciled peoples that grace had come to. And what this one new person is called is the church. This series has been all about the church being what God is doing in the world today. The church is where you see God's hand most at work. And after the first three chapters, Paul then says, now knowing what God has done in Christ, this is how you live out the new man. This is the, the shape that this new life takes. And in chapter 4, it begins in, in a very general fashion. But then in chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through 6, 9, we have what that life looks like in individual households. So Paul moves from the household of God, the household of the church, to individual households. And within individual households, he addresses three different relationships. The first being marriages. Second being parenting. And the third... Boy, oh boy. Well, let's just say at this juncture of the household code, the, the ancient and contemporary household composition contrasts sharply. Because today in the final section of the household code, we see Paul addressing the relationship between slaves and masters. So with that, let's read together. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he 
who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together once again on a Sunday morning to consider how our relationships might be changed by the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. How you change us from within, not from without. How you change the very essence of who we are, not just our behavior. How you change hearts, not merely external systems. Thank you, Lord, that you're in the business of transforming lives and raising the dead to life. We thank you, Lord, that we are the subjects of that transforming work. Lord, I pray that we would encounter Christ once again today and be motivated afresh to serve him and to love one another in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I wrestled with how to open up this sermon. This isn't the kind of sermon to open up with a, with a funny story or some sort of attention catcher, but I think it'd be more appropriate to direct your attention straight to the text and look at that word that you see if you're reading in the ESV version, translated as bondservants. And the word that you see translated as bondservant can just as easily be translated and is in some versions translated as slave. And it would not be an inappropriate decision to translate that as slave. And I, and I think that the very mentioning of slave or slavery probably draws an immediate straight-line connection in the, mind of, in the mind of every American with the transatlantic slave trade that occurred from the 15th century all the way to the 19th century in the United States and in the Western world. And because of that connection that is no doubt made in everybody's mind, I think it's appropriate to begin the sermon with an affirmation that the unwilling enslavement of a human being by another as, as property is deplorable, is sinful, is cruel, is wicked in the eyes of God and in the eyes of his church. It's important to make that very clear right up front. Okay? Now here's the thing. The New Testament contains quite a few passages on slavery and quite a few passages that, that speak directly to slaves and masters in the ancient world. And here's why there are a lot of people who struggle with the New Testament's teaching related to slavery. It's because it doesn't seem to come out and directly condemn the institution of slavery anywhere. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul identifies that slave traders, those who engage in the act of, of trading slaves as though they were mere property, are wicked. That is a wicked practice, and he condemns that. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, he tells slaves that if they're able to gain their freedom, that they should do so. But there's no direct condemnation of the institution of slavery. So, how are we to understand this passage? 
And how are we to understand the Bible's position on slavery? Well, there, there are two considerations that we have to make. Okay? The, the, the first being that, that there is an ancient and a modern context to this discussion. There's an ancient and a modern context. The second consideration is that there is an ancient and a modern application. And, and, and those, as you might suspect, will form the, the outline of the rest of the time together. So there will be two points for this sermon. An ancient and a modern context and an ancient and a modern application. But listen, if, if, if you're nodding off, if you're checking out right now just because you're thinking, well, this is just going to be sort of some sort of academic lecture about the Bible's position on slavery, listen up. Listen up because this sermon involves you. Paul's point isn't to give an in, it isn't to give a lecture about the institution of slavery. That's that is very much not his point. The deeper point he's driving home to each and every one of us even is this that every Christian is a slave of Christ. That every Christian is a slave of Christ. And you might think, well, maybe, okay, as a preacher, he's just making a provocative statement there, and he's kind of trying to get people's attention. No, I'm not. This is the Bible's teaching. But when we understand what that means and the implications of that are, that's actually one of the sweetest things we could hear. And if you're thinking, yeah, convince me. Well, I intend to, and so does Paul. So whether you are... Whether in, in, in your human position you, you are in authority or under authority, Jesus is your master as a Christian. And that completely changes how you relate to human authority at every level. So this sermon is for you. So, so let's lean in together and take these two considerations one at a time. So let's start with the first. The first consideration, an ancient and a modern context. The, the, the ancient context of slavery and the modern context of slavery. And again, I'll say this. If, if modern slavery, and, and by modern slavery, I mean the, the, the current forms of, of slavery, in, including the horrific practice of the trafficking of human lives and the practice of child forced labor and, and the... the the more modern but not as contemporary practices of the transatlantic slave trade of African peoples and the, the subjugation of indigenous peoples by Western colonization movements. If modern slavery by those definitions is repulsive to you, it should be. It should be. Frederick Douglass, one of the most important leaders for African-American civil rights in the 1800s said this of slave owners who used the Bible unjustly to justify their treatment of their slaves, said this. He said, between the Christianity of these slave owners and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. He says, I love the pure peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, forced slavery, women whipping, cradle plundering, 
partial and hypocritical Christianity of these men. There were in those times, there are in these times, there were even in ancient times, people who used the Bible in unjust ways that did not represent God to justify their cruel actions. And in fact, it was correct and accurate Christian argumentation from the gospel by men like William Wilberforce and John Newton that eventually dismantled the transatlantic slave trade. It was the very teaching of scripture. It was, it was the teaching of the gospel that led to the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. But in Paul's day, the transatlantic slave trade wouldn't begin for another 1,400 years. But that doesn't mean that slavery was uncommon in his day and in his context. In fact, in fact, scholars estimate that, that in the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, 80 to 90 percent of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire were slaves in the first century. Slavery as an institution it, at that time in the first century, it pervaded the entire Western world. It was, it, was, it was part of the economy of the entire world at that point in time, far more, far more visible and far more active than in more modern periods of time. But listen to this and hear this clearly. First century slavery differed dramatically from the American and European enslavement of African peoples of the last 500 years. Scholar A.A. Ruprecht in the Dictionary of Paul and His Letters writes that, first off, slavery in the first century was not race or ethnicity based. It wasn't the subjugation of one race by another race. Furthermore, in a time of, con of conquest and, and empires, many slaves were prisoners of war. They, they, were, they were enslaved as a result of, of conquest and, and were, were incorporated into the societies of those empirical conquests. Many, many other slaves were, were men and women who sold themselves voluntarily to, to pay off large debts or even to, to willingly uh, be relieved from financial obligations selling themselves into slavery so that they didn't have to worry about, about working for a living, just kind of coming underneath the authority of another large household, sort of like coming underneath the authority of a business. Now, these kinds of willing slaves were known as bond servants, which is why you see the Greek word doulos translated here appropriately, appropriately as bond servants. But, but beyond these things, slaves in, in Roman society were afforded a, a certain amount of civil rights that were completely uncommon to the 18th and 17th century slavery of America. There were also terms. Slavery was almost never lifelong unless it was a sentence for a particular heinous crime. Most slaves served a term of no more than seven years, and most slaves were released from their duty by the age of 30. 
So it was a very different context in the first century in the Roman Empire. But here's the thing. That's not to say that it was a completely domesticated and, and nice and neat institution. No, there were, just as today, plenty of people who, with corrupt motives and corrupt desires, used it for the sake of their own gain at the expense of the harsh, cruel treatment of those under their authority. Listen to this. Author John Stark says, these explanations, while helpful, they don't deal with what Paul actually says here. Many pastors, apologists, and scholars only worry about defending Paul against endorsing slavery, and they totally miss his point. Tellingly, you and I, we haven't yet examined a single verse in this passage So if we stopped right now, we would be doing this passage a complete injustice. Because Paul's point here isn't to defend himself against the charge that he was pro-slavery. No, no, no. Paul has a, he has a more powerful weapon against human slavery even than any abolitionist had. And that leads us to the second point. So the first point being uh, uh, an ancient and a modern context that are different. Second point being an ancient and a modern application. So how do we look at what Paul says here and actually apply it in its ancient context and in its current and modern context? Let me first say that the reason that that Paul didn't call for abolition wasn't because he was scared to aim so high as to call for abolition. No. He was aiming at something even higher than that. In a slave-master relationship, he was was aiming at he was aiming at Jesus for both the slave and the master. Look at verse 5. Look at this. Pay attention to this. This isn't by happenstance. Verse 5. Obey. Yes, obey your earthly masters. Obey as you would Christ. Verse 6, verse 6, obey, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ. Verse 7, rendering service as to the Lord. Verse 8, the the, the good that you do will be received back from the Lord. Notice, every one of those verses addressed to slaves has to do with their relationship with Jesus. There there is a a horizontal relationship between them and, and their master, but ultimately, Paul is saying, hey, slaves, direct your eyes to Christ. But then in verse 9, and this was just stunning, he says to the masters, he says, hey, do the same to them, which itself, we'll get there, is just You didn't hear that from anybody in those days. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, meaning the slave's master, and yours is in heaven. Hey, masters, you you yourselves are subject to a greater authority. Paul's aim is to direct the eyes of his readers, whether 
whether human slave or human master, to, to Jesus, the benevolent and, and ultimate master. And, and we've seen this, this principle play out over and over in the book of Ephesians, and, and Paul says it very clearly in Galatians 3.28. He says, listen, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Listen, Christianity was not subversive in the sense that it stirred up rebellion. It was subversive in the sense that it raised the slave to the level of being an equal human being before Christ. You see, not even abolition could do that for somebody. Because the human heart is still involved. The human heart can look at somebody who was enslaved and is now free and still look on that person as though as though one is better than the other. As though one has more value than the other. So the, the heart issue has not been solved by the actual abolition of a practice. See, for Paul, social status, it exists and it's a real thing, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Identity in Christ matters to Paul. Did you know that there's an entire book of the New Testament that's written to a slave owner about his slave? It's a book of, book of Philemon, and Philemon was a slave owner in the first century, and he had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus had run away. But both Philemon and Onesimus had become Christians while participating in, in this institution of, of this relationship of slave to master. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon, this, this newly converted Christian, writing on behalf of this newly converted Christian named Onesimus, who's nervous about, okay, what do I do now? I ran away from my master. How as a Christian do I do I operate? Do, 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 I, do I keep running away from it? Do, do, do I go back and receive the punishment that he can give at his whim toward me? Paul says, no. I'm going to write a letter to, to Philemon. And he says to Philemon, he says, when you receive him, he says, I'm sending him back. When you receive him, receive him no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. See, Paul is saying, hey, because of Christ, th there's, there's this social relationship that, that, that may still exist, but that doesn't matter to me. To you, he's now more than that. To you, he has been elevated. Both of you have been elevated to the household of Christ. And that's how you're to regard him now. That's his point. Social status in any sector does not matter to Paul. It doesn't matter to Christ. Even slaves and masters have been made one in Christ. The important issue is that is that one is serving Christ. Social status is simply the context for that service. And so he says to slaves, 
obey your masters. In verse 6, look down at verse 6. He says, not by way of eye service. In other words, don't, don't seek to do well in the sight of men. Don't make it about seeking the approval of your master. That's not what you should be concerned with. Why? Because there's a greater authority that you've been subjected to, which is the authority of Christ. Not by way of eye service so as to please men, but so as to please Christ. And he doesn't just say so as to please Christ. Look at this. He says, look at this, but as bondservants of Christ. And I said this at the front end. That's the same word, doulos, which, which can also be translated as slave. Paul is literally saying to them, render service, not, not, not as eye service, as though you were to please men, but do it as slaves of Christ. Do well in the sight of Christ, your master, as his slave. And this is the point where you go, whoa, 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 what, what do you mean? Slave of Christ? On one hand, it's in here, it's in your Bibles. Paul said this. On, on, on the other hand, you're asking, well, you're telling me that Christianity actually calls followers of Christ to be his slaves? Actually, what I'm, what I'm saying and what you're hearing here is actually not that provocative because here's the thing. If you, and if you haven't been paying attention, take a, take a big deep breath. Look forward. Open up your ears. Soften your heart. Turn on your brain and consider this. According to the Bible, every single person on earth is a slave. Every single person on earth is a slave. So that's why it's not that provocative to say the Christians are slaves to Christ because everybody is a slave. It's just a matter of who you're a slave to. And Jesus says, Jesus himself says in John 8, 34, he says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. How does Jesus arrive at this conclusion? In John 8, 34, well, Paul explains in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What he's saying, in this world, you are either a slave to sin and self and death, which sin leads to, or you are a slave to the God who made the world. There are two options. You are either serving the master of sin and Satan and self and death or you're serving the master of the God who created this world. There are two options and only two options. Paul continues in Romans, Romans 6, 6, 17 through 18. He says, but thanks be to God, speaking now to Christians. He says that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. 
So you have two choices. Everybody has two choices. Two, two choices. You can obey your sinful impulses and live the way you want, which, mind you, feels like freedom. Feels like freedom. But it's slavery because you cannot escape the outcome of that enslavement to sin, which is death and judgment. Or you can obey Christ and submit as a slave of Christ. And listen, if, if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, all right, got two options, but what kind of a master is Jesus? Because how do I know that one is better than the other? Well, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, as the, as the master of all who would come to him, he says, come to me. You heard it this morning in the call to worship. Come to me. All who labor, meaning all who labor in slavery to sin and self, what Jesus is saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden with sin and guilt. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he's foreshadowing in this statement in Matthew 11, he's foreshadowing the cross. Because on the cross, he made your yoke easy and your burden light because he took your heavy burden on himself. He took it on himself and he paid the penalty for it. That slavery to sin and death that you were caught in, that maybe you didn't even know you, you were caught in, he took it on himself and he paid for it. And he redeemed you. Mind you, re redemption, salvation, justification language, this is actually slavery language. When a slave was redeemed from slavery, he was, he was paid for and his freedom was paid for. Jesus redeemed us at the cross. He took our burden upon him and gave us his burden. His burden? His burden is the burden of being alleviated of all guilt. His burden is the burden of righteousness. His burden is the burden of knowing that God the Father takes pleasure in you, in him. His burden is one of grace. His yoke is a yoke of mercy. He throws off the shackles of slavery to sin and he says, I have obeyed in your place. Welcome into my household. Follow, follow my teaching, my ways. Follow the righteousness that leads to life. And when the Bible says, obey your master, Christ, that's the obedience he's talking about. It's the obedience that leads to life. See, in the, in the, in the world of slavery, no master ever looked on his slave and made it his primary aim to work for the good of his slave. A slave, traditionally, is a tool for another means, for another end, right? Right? is a means for another end. 
The institution of slavery is built on using slaves as tools for another end. But Jesus, he looks on those who come to him and he makes it his primary objective to work for their good and for the glory of the Father. There is no master like Jesus. There is no master that you could ever hope to find like Jesus. Get this. Not only is Jesus a good and kind master, he's preserving a reward for all who follow him. Look at at verse 8. So, so obey, obey your masters, render service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. He's saying, hey, whether, whether you are currently a slave or whether you're free, your reward is not in this life. It's, it's not about the comfort that you can live in right now. It's not about the, the treatment that you receive from others right now. He says, I am preserving for you a heavenly reward. Second Peter 1 says that it is an inheritance that is imperishable, unfading, unchanging, kept in heaven by Christ himself. And he's saying, slaves, I know your, your earthly role right now is hard and it feels like there's no reward. Render service with a good will, knowing that I, your Lord, your master, I'm preserving your reward. And it's greater than anything you could hope for in the here and now. So are you, are you enslaved? Are you under authority? You may not see much reward in this life, but that's okay because your reward in heaven is so much greater than you can imagine. And eternal perspective matters, is what Paul is saying here. This life is not all there is. In fact, this life is only a glimpse of the good that's to come for those who are in Christ. Now, I, I, I want to I get to, to modern application, but before we get there, I want to address verse 9. Okay? Paul gives instructions to masters, and it's one verse, one verse here. Verse 9, look down there. Masters, <laughs> do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. You see, he's already taken the slave and elevated them to a position of equal humanity to their masters. But now he's saying, and, and, and this is revolutionary, he's saying, masters, you have no right to threaten or mistreat your slaves. Instead, Treat them with a good will, just like I've just instructed the slaves to treat you. Because you also are slaves to the same master they are. In other words, masters, your human authority is a checked authority. It is not ultimate authority. You yourselves are subject to a greater authority. The same authority that your slaves are subjected to. It was unheard of to call a social superior to respect a social inferior. Never in that society was that called for. Author Ryan Vandervoort 
says that many, many earthly social structures basically communicate, I am better than you. But in Jesus, any hierarchies we create and use as power plays over others are instead leveled. All of them. Masters, you're under the same authority your slaves are. The central idea in all this is that no human authority is ultimate and all human authority is under Christ. So here's the effect. If you're still asking, well, yeah, but why didn't Paul try and dismantle this institution? It's because he did something even better. He reconciled slaves and masters and told them to see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ who are both subject to the same good master. He completely changed their hearts. He completely changed their relationships. And what was the result of this strategy? What was the result of this strategy? Walter Kaiser says, we read in the literature of the second century and later of many masters who upon their conversion, listen to this, freed their slaves. The reality stands, listen to this, that it is difficult to call a person a slave during the week and treat them like a brother or sister in church. Paul did, in the end, create a revolution, yet not one from without, but one from within. In the church, you saw this institution just dismantling. Masters going, I, I, can't, I can't treat this person like a slave anymore. It's my brother in Christ. And they end up freeing their slaves. Now, how do we, in 2024, Santa Ana, apply this? Because it, unless I'm mistaken, and I would be sorely mistaken, nobody here owns any slaves or is enslaved. If that's the case, what do we do with this? Well, I have three different points of application. Okay, so if you're taking notes, three points of application. The first one is apply this everywhere and always. Colossians 3.22 through 4.1 is the parallel passage for Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. It, it says almost the exact, same thing, the exact same thing, but he restates what he says in Ephesians 6, 5 in Colossians 3.23. And you might hear Colossians 3.23, oh yeah, I know, I know that, that passage. What does Colossians 3.23 say? He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Did, did you know that that passage was given in the context of instructions to slaves and masters? But the point is, Paul is saying, hey, listen, all of you, whatever you do, whatever you do, whoever you are, whatever position you're in, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This is the principle here. Whatever your position, whatever your situation in life, strive to glorify Christ in all you do. See Christ as the Lord of all your life. Is there a realm of your life where, where you don't see Jesus as Lord over that realm? You, you see him maybe as the a, as a Lord over your, your church, churchly activities. 
Maybe you see him as, as Lord of your, your parenting or your, your marriage. But then you go to work. And you got a boss, and, and it's sort of a corporate structure there, and business rules apply. And he's not so much Lord over, over that concept, context. Or maybe what you do on the weekends, when you, when you finally let your hair down and, and relax and go out and have fun. Maybe he's not so much Lord over, over that context. Paul is saying, no, no. He is Lord over every square inch and every last moment of your life. Therefore, work heartily in all you do, whatever you do, whoever you are, whenever you are, as for the Lord, Jesus Christ. Second point of application, number two. First one being apply this everywhere and always. The second one is apply this in your understanding of salvation. This is this is helpful. Appreciate the richness of this slave-master metaphor in our Christian life. God has redeemed what is a, a corrupt institution or a corrupted institution and said, you were slaves to sin. You have been redeemed. You have been justified. You have been saved. This isn't just a helpful metaphor to understand our lives before Christ as slavery to sin, but that perspective, it, it unlocks much of the beauty of what Christ has done in our hearts and in our lives. Apply this in your understanding of what Christ has done to you and for you. So first, apply this everywhere and always. Secondly, apply this in your understanding of salvation. Thirdly, apply this in your job. Apply this in your job. In your job, obey your earthly boss as you would Christ. And you think, well, that may, maybe that's kind of a far-reaching application. Are you sort of pulling that out of the text and that's not really there? Listen to this. And actually, this is the wording of Jeff, the, the premier scholar of Cross the Grace Church of Santa Ana. <laughs> if slaves and masters, how much more for employees and their supervisors? If believers back then could and did obey these words in such a system that could be so much more prone to abuse, in which it could seem so much harder to obey, then can we render service in our jobs as to the Lord and not to men? That's the question put to us. It's a downflow. This is downstream of slaves and masters. If, if they can be given that instruction and be reasonably expected to, uh, to, to obey it and follow it, in your jobs with your boss, this applies just as much. So as an employee, in whatever your job is, whatever you do in the marketplace, is Jesus your master? Verse 5, obey, let's say, boss, substitute boss for master. Obey your earthly boss with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Do you sincerely, with a sincere heart, obey your boss? Follow the rules of human resources at your institution. Do you, with a sincere heart, apply yourself to your work in a non-begrudging sort of way? Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Are you seeking the approval of man? Are you just trying to do things in such a way that you get kudos from your coworkers and your boss? Or is this really about giving glory to Jesus in all you do? 
working hard. Working hard because you have the love of Christ on your life and nothing can take that away and you belong to him and he is your benevolent and good master. Verse seven, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Do you completely fulfill your obligations and work heartily? Are you cutting corners? Are you sweeping things under the rug? Are you doing the bare minimum? Or are you working heartily? Knowing that, that working and earning an income and providing for a family and providing for yourself and, and contributing to your society and, and working in the context of, of coworkers, many of whom are believers, some who aren't, is a way that you can worship Jesus your Lord with all of life. It's something you're probably spending 40 hours a week doing anyway. Might as well use those 40 hours a week to bring glory to Jesus. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he's a bondservant or is free. And by God's grace, we are all free. But our reward, nonetheless, comes from him. Are you primarily motivated by climbing the corporate ladder and getting the next job? Are you primarily motivated by the money-earning potential of your career so that you can build the life that you want for yourself? But are you looking forward to a heavenly reward? And seeking to use what the Lord gives you through, through your work to bless others. To set an example before others to glorify God through your work, whatever your position is, whatever promotion you do get or don't get, is your reward a heavenly reward? Are your ambitions selfish and temporal, or are they others-focused and eternal? We could go on and on and on in application here. But the point is, every Christian is a servant, a bondservant, a slave to Jesus Christ, our Lord, like whom there is no other. We're going to close by singing a song that, that declares that, Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no other master we would want to serve. How wonderful it is to be his. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Thank you, Lord, for saving, us, for, for saving us through your Son from slavery to sin. Lord, we acknowledge that every one of us is a slave to whatever we obey, to whatever impulses, whatever commands, whatever moral code, whatever master we're obeying, to that we are its servant, its slave. Thank you for sending your Son the Lord of all creation, the one that you have elevated, the one that you have exalted to the name of, above all names, which is Lord. Thank you that he is our Lord and that we get to serve him with our lives. Would you give us the strength and the courage to do that? It's in his name we pray, amen.